You've scanned the headlines, you've read the articles and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by AllWork.Space. Today, we welcome Joshua Jahani, lecturer at Cornell University and the managing director of Jahani & Associates, a global investment bank with over 200 clients. With expertise spanning continents, he's a true titan of cross-border finance. Joshua, welcome to the Future Work Podcast. Really excited to have you here with us today. Say, we've known each other for a while, and I know you're a very talented investment banker specializing in the middle market, but you have an interesting background. Not many investment bankers have an engineering background. Tell me how that impacted, has impacted your work and how it makes you look at things a little bit differently. Thank you, Frank. It's really good to be here, and, and I'm really excited to be on this podcast with you. Uh, when I started Jahani & Associates, it was really driven by the need of small and medium-sized companies for bulge bracket advice. Most of the large companies uh, that can afford to hire Goldman Sachs or Molis or whoever uh, receive the benefit of people that have done billions of dollars of transactions and have decades and decades of experience. And that level of expertise is not available to small companies simply because Goldman Sachs and Molis can't earn the profits and the revenues they need to for their shareholders in, uh, and, and provide the, the quality of service that, that they would be expected. So when I started Jahani, we had to figure out how to bring the same level of high quality advice to clients, but uh, in a more cost effective way. We can't afford to have 20 bankers working on one deal that may or may not close for five or $20 million, the fees just won't support it. And so we've used technology a lot. We've used technology to provide customer service. We've used technology to acquire customers and we've used technology to help communicate opportunities to investors in ways that I think the bigger folks in the industry haven't. And we've used engineering to do that systems engineering. So your engineering background allow you to understand the workings of a company better, you, you believe, than just a financial background. I mean, I've talked to, God, I don't know how many junior analysts at some of these big firms through the years. And, you know, you talk to one, you talk to them all. I mean, <laughs> not much difference. Hi, I'm the most recent graduate from Harvard. Uh, exactly. And, uh, you know, but... I, so I, I, I think that is a, a difference, uh, and, and it, it's a difference that has merit. Um, too often when you speak to a financial organization, uh, they want to talk numbers and they want to talk market share and they want to talk things that criti are critically important, but they don't really drill down into the workings of your business. Uh, they don't yeah. know how to. Uh, so I think that that is a unique thing. But as we slide over to finance, we slide over to things that are impacting the markets today and focus on the capital markets. Um, interest rates, inflation, um, these yeah. things have a huge impact. Uh, and as we look at companies, the way they're developed and the impact, particularly on real estate, it takes us to uh, how people are going to work in the future, um, the future of the workplace overall. So what are your thoughts on the impact the capital markets of our current economic situation. Yeah, it's really a fascinating time. And it, I view it in layers, is that on one layer, exactly what you said, you have these interest rates that are high, higher than they have been historically. 
and that the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank of, of Europe and banks in, in England are saying they will not immediately lower. And some of them are even saying they're going to continue increasing interest rates. So that's fact number one. And they're doing that to combat inflation. And there's reasons, there's good reasons why they're doing that. It's you know a debate as to how they should do more, but that's to the side of this. And then obviously you have how increased interest rates affect capital markets with anything that requires leverage. That could be stocks, that could be private equity, public equity, but also in real estate. And then the third level is the largest asset class of real estate by many analyst estimates is commercial real estate. So you have this, this, we'll call it an explosion just to make it more interesting, but this, this significant rise of interest rates, which impacts capital markets, which impacts commercial real estate, all at the backdrop of this pandemic. Well, you know, but, but it's interesting because you mentioned the UK and, and the US in the US, we have the same situation. Uh, maybe even a little bit more uh, aggressive interest rate uh, approach. Um, but the economy is doing well. The markets are doing well. In London, you've got the same interest rate issues, the same uh, um, inflationary issues, almost identical structures. And the markets are in the tank. The economy is doing terribly. So how do you explain the same circumstance in the two very interesting economies same set of rules, so to speak, but with totally different outcomes. Well, I think it's hard to look at the UK and the US as apples to apples because the GDP of the UK is around $3.5, $3 trillion, whereas the US is about $25 trillion. Uh, California is roughly the size of the UK. And so the UK is more susceptible but to... But the California economy is doing well in spite of... California being California. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's, it, it, they're so different, right? When you look at the US and what we deal with here versus how the England and the UK get pulled into, uh, you know, the, the invasion of Ukraine, volatility in Europe, they're, they're more susceptible to that, which, which led to a lot of what Brexit right. was about. Uh, but some of the reforms and some of the changes that the bank is doing are specifically to make capital markets more attractive. I think you're also referring to stock markets. The stock market in the U.S. is doing well, largely driven by this recent AI boost. This chat GPT growth has made investors more willing to buy tech stocks. And it's carrying the S&P 500. Um, but to, to like to this this capital markets ecosystem and these interest rates across the backdrop of this pandemic is just a very unique time. And when you think about to your question and what I think about all the time of the future of work is it's hard to predict how serious these changes are going to be. Like they're, I think they're going to be extremely severe, not in a bad way, but extremely impactful particularly when we're five or 10 years in the future and we look back, we're like, remember when we used to like sit in offices and breathe on each other and then we weren't breathing at all. And now we're all in some kind of metaverse. You've seen this, this Apple headset, right? This oh, three yeah. and a half thousand dollar yep. headset. It's really wild. And I run a remote company. We have employees all over the world. And if there was an AR VR solution that could help me engage with my employees more, something besides just like the two-dimensional screen, I would pay for it very quickly. And yeah. I think 
This is going to happen. That's an interesting issue because it's really what are the drivers to the broader trends that we see uh, overall. And when you talk about an asset class and and real estate, commercial real estate being uh, the, if not the largest, uh, at least one of the uh, two or three largest asset classes in the world on a global basis. Use the same analogy, UK and the US. In the US, in the major markets, including gray space, we're approaching a 50% vacancy factor and our markets are fine. In the UK, there are only about a 10% vacancy factor. Um, uh, So by comparison, they're full up. Uh, And and, uh, yet, uh, even in major cities, and we can do a London, New York comparison, uh, in that regard, uh, both cities are dependent upon com- commuters. They import the workforce every day and send it home every night to a great degree. Both cities are very expensive to live in, in the core central part of the cities uh, overall. Um, uh, and both cities are finan- global financial centers. Uh, so how do we relate these trending issues things such as inflation, such as, as interest rates, to the way people will work when we're seeing such different outcomes in different areas? Is there a, what, what are the common threads that we look at? Um, it, it, uh, I'd like to say it's technology, such as you suggest, but I'm not sure today that we're, we're seeing that. It reminds me of what Elon Musk said Uh, I think he was quoted as saying that working from home, and I'm paraphrasing, was immoral or unethical. And specifically what he was referring to was uh, the engineers that worked for him at SpaceX and Tesla. And his premise, I think it it makes some sense. It's always delivered a bit. um, It's delivered in ways that cause uh, controversy, Elon Musk's statements. But when you look at uh, people in engineering and people that build physical things versus I watched a video shortly after that Elon Musk interview with Kevin O'Leary, the famous Shark Tank investor. And he was talking about how people in compliance or people in certain kinds of financial services are never going back to the office. And I think, I think those two uh, examples, anecdotal, uh, they may be provide insight into an answer of, of what you're talking about, which is, the kinds of workforces that exist in different cities. It's difficult to, to say which one is London versus not London, but I think Elon Musk and Kevin O'Leary were both right. Like if you have to build something that's gonna go from point A to point B and it has wheels, it's very difficult to do virtually. Whereas if Kevin, to Kevin O'Leary's point, if you just need to look at spreadsheets and make sure that the, the balance sheet is balanced, why would you go into the office? Why? And I think that's part of what's driving uh, certain areas of people working from home. We're talking about that and the need for physical interaction in different workspaces. Well, yeah, I, I, I think, too, the issue is that there, it's, it's, everybody has black and white statements, but the issue itself isn't black and white. Right. Uh, um, and when Elon Musk talks about uh, uh, remote work being immoral, um, you know, there are degrees of morality. Uh, that are acceptable and unacceptable. Uh, uh, so does that mean a four-day week, work week, 
where everybody goes to the office is a better solution? That's highly moral in Elon Musk's point of view. Or does it mean a work week where you work two days from home and three days in the office? Is that moral enough uh, uh, to, to consider? And I think that's what we're looking at is everybody knows we need to get together face to face. We just don't need to do it every day, all day long. Right. Uh, and I think that's, that's where the uh, shades of gray or morality come into it, if we want to use that term. I, I kind of like that term, by the way. Uh, uh, you know, it's it gives the, it all the biblical sense uh, right. things. Um, uh, but uh, you, you are talking about a lot of shades of gray here. And uh, I, I think as we look at the future of work, jobs and job descriptions, you talk about people that uh, build things, physical things. Um, <clears throat> well, does a lathe operator who's running uh, a machine to build parts for construction of an automobile, does that lathe operator need to be standing in front of the lathe anymore? Mm. No, no. I, I'm dealing with a, a company right now that has all heavy equipment that does landscaping, not landscaping, but, but does uh, foundation creation and everything for large mass of things, earth movers, that sort of thing. They run all of that equipment remotely without people now, just like they yeah. run drones. Uh, so, you know, five people sit at a remote location running large earth moving equipment, uh, scraping the earth, making uh, new developments, uh, doing mining, uh, all sorts of things. There are no drivers. It's all done remotely. So, you know, it's interesting to think about, and I think this builds on what you're saying is so capitalist, a capitalistic economy is driven by serving the needs of your customers. So the customers pay you money to do stuff. And if your customers have remote needs, then you can serve those needs remotely. If they have in-person needs, then you can, you have to serve them in person. Like the business owner is uh, sort of required to do what the customer wants to do. And people's needs are more and more remote and more and more digital. So the future of work, as long as we're a capitalistic society, which will continue you know, for the foreseeable future, the future of work is going to be digital. It's going to be serving digital needs of customers. And it's even interesting to think about the price. So when most of your customers' needs were in person, which is almost like pre-2020, retail, yeah. et cetera, the cost for that labor was low because there's more competitive, there's all kinds of supply and demand dynamics for that. But it's interesting to think about a world with what you're talking about and the world we live in, where if most of your customer needs are digital, then will the price for in-person labor or an in-person solution go up? And will we, we be in like an inverted capitalistic system where you pay more to do stuff in person? And I, I think that could even be impacting what we're seeing on the commercial real estate side. I, I think we're headed there. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. Uh, as you know, we have another company, Alliance Virtual Offices, and we spend, when I look, as, as you're talking, and I think, I think of budgeting uh, and, and personnel, uh, we have a, a, a cost for personnel in our service department. Uh, but we are spending uh, almost an equal cost right now in developing our custom, redeveloping and improving 
the digital capacity of our customer service portal. That is all self-service. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the cost per employee uh, of a, a service representative sitting at a desk handling questions and, and that is X. The cost of the creator of the digital portal is three to five times X. Um, so you obviously hope you have less of them or it's not going to work. But um, uh, uh, I, so I, 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 I agree with your, your, your situation. Um, the, one of the challenges, and maybe this is an AI issue, is communications when you, you come down to servicing customers. The customer doesn't always know how to explain their problem. Uh, you, you, you have to interpret what the customer says and sometimes dig into what the customer says to understand their real need. And then you propose a solution. And if that solution is acceptable, you hopefully can implement it for the customer. It's a pretty classic uh, process. Um, that's very hard to do digitally. We've all heard of, you know, I'm stuck in voicemail hell. Uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't get to somebody that I can really do anything. Um, uh, and we've all been in these round robin things for years. Um, and, and what are your thoughts on artificial intelligence and how that might create, uh, an understanding bridge of need versus solution? Oh man. Well, it's my brother was sending me chat GPT, you know, like he say, make a menu for someone that's vegan or et cetera. And then he would send me the result. And I was, it was just amazed. Uh, this was a, like a few months ago at how advanced the solution really is. And it made me understand some of the, the comments around regulating it or, uh, you know, yeah, that we've seen on the news. I'm not sure how the, the AI solution that's hot right now, that's in the buzz can do anything other than lower costs that people have in fulfilling digital needs that customers have, right? You log into Amazon and I think they still tell you it's a robot, but one day they just won't tell you, right? And you'll, you'll think you're talking to a human and it'll actually be some kind of AI solution. Um, my thinking, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I think when you look at these kinds of like, that's the, the commercial solution. Right. That's that's what we see. You and I see as non-tech geniuses. I don't want to I don't want to undersell you, but I think that's, you know, you're, you're probably not a tech genius, genius no, in other ways. That's right. Neither am I. Uh, but what that might allow technologists to do <clears throat> is develop solutions that help bridge these communication gaps into something that we haven't even thought of. Like, cause, cause when you think about AR, VR solutions, a big problem is like data processing and being able to package data. And I really think that we're at the cusp of a stepwise change in how we solve the problem you identified, which was really communicating. You know, we used to do phone and then it was email and now we have these video solutions. We're just one step away from something else that's more advanced where maybe I see you over here and I see other members of the team on the other side. And I think that's where these AI solutions come into play. It's more on the back end. Well, I, I, I know that uh, we've been using video systems, <clears throat> which is a, <clears throat> excuse me, a two-dimensional process. I think the first video system we put into our own company and our own facilities was back in 82 or 83. Um, this was before PCs were even prevalent. Uh, so 
this technology we're using today is, has become, it's lowered its cost threshold, like by a factor of 10,000. Um, right. And it increased its convenience threshold by a factor, again, equally of 10,000. Um, but it hasn't changed otherwise. Um, <clears throat> the only thing that's changed is I've gotten gray hair and lost some, some on top. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, so we do see that, uh, you know, coming along. Change, we think it's really rapid, but core technologies, um, especially if you're an early adapter, don't really change that rapidly. Um, when you reference chat GPT and, and things of that nature, we're creating a new uh, position, a couple of positions in different companies. Uh, and it's just, um, we're just right now referring to it as a prompter, uh, yeah. a, a person who their, their whole job is to look at problems, uh, mostly around content creation and, and getting uh, data uh, and understanding how to query correctly and aggressively and, and, and thoroughly, and then vet the query to make sure the information delivered is accurate. Because we all have heard stories about uh, chat GTP just sort of making things up on the fly sometimes, uh, <clears throat> which is adds a little extra spice when you're the author of something and, and you, you misquote somebody terribly. Um, <laughs> uh, um, Imagine quoting Elon Musk instead of immoral. You said it's amoral. Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, a prompter is a new position that has been created, uh, not just by us, but by many people now. This is a quasi-technologist's position um, in the same way as a data analyst uh, in, in many respects. It's a type of data analyst. Uh, and, and I see that emerging as an elemental part within probably every company in the future uh, as we talk, uh, because you, you have to be able to, if you're going to adapt to these technologies, you have to use them with discerning care. Um, yeah. You can't just ask dumb questions and you'll, you know, as they say, you know, dumb questions get dumb answers. Uh, right. so you, you have to be very careful of that. And, and, and that's something that we're going to fight a battle over because a lot of people will take the easy route, but it's, yeah. uh, you know, ask those easy questions and then print it, put it out there, say it, re uh, repeat it. Uh, my goodness. How do you think our next uh, political election is going to come uh, in, in this regard? We're yeah. going to be AI to death in every yeah. commercial that's going to create every form of mis, dis, and uh, whatever other kind of information you want to say on all parties um, that, that we look at it. Anyway, I'm getting off the future of work a little bit, not with AI, but as, as going rolling back to the real estate, I know you have a lot of depth and experience there. Uh, do you think that we'll be repurposing cities uh, based on these vacancy factors, because the the dynamics of the investment, um, let, let's create a scenario, interest rates go up, yields on uh, vacancy factors go up, yields on buildings go down, property companies go bankrupt, thereafter investors in property companies go bankrupt, thereafter investors in the investors, so investors in insurance companies,
go bankrupt, uh, yep. et cetera. You hit this, this ripple effect uh, and chaining. And yet, unlike a typical bankruptcy, the asset is still 100% in place. In a typical yep. bankruptcy, the assets are destroyed as well or materially impacted on a negative basis. In this particular case, the asset isn't hurt at all. But everybody attached to the asset gets hurt because of this revaluation process. Um, uh, so how does that play out? Big question. If you can answer that, you, you can take over Goldman. Uh, yeah, yeah, that is a big question. I, I think what's maybe that's uh, it gives some hope because there's the reason interest rates are up is inflation is high and the Fed almost it's not that they want us to be in a recession, but they're trying to slow the growth. It's too high. It's too fast. They know if it goes up really high and then it comes down too fast, the little people get hurt. And so that's the purpose. That's the reason they increase interest rates. And we've seen this happen. In 2008, it was, it was similar. It was uh, uh, residentially real estate driven with the mortgage-backed securities. Sure. Um, and so I think that maybe that, that can help reduce some volatility. And I would interpret what you're talking about in the scenario you painted, which is correct, as the underlying asset is still there. The scenario I'm painting, though, Joshua, has to do with the vacancy factor, which impacts the economic return on the space not just the interest rates, the cost of money getting higher to deal with that problem is one thing. Um, but the problem itself is the vacancy factor as companies reassess. And they were doing this before the pandemic. A lot of companies were reassessing the utilization of their space to begin with. Remote work didn't happen you know, in 2021 and 2020, right. remote work was starting in 16, 17, 18, when the battle for talent was going on and the employees were saying, you know what, uh, I'd love to come work for your company, uh, but I've got to be able to work from home uh, one day a week. I need to be yeah. able to work from home on Mondays uh, or I'm going to take the job at uh, the other company that's offering me a job. Battle for talent was driving remote work before pandemic. So everybody was already trying to figure out the perfect remote work policy. Then the pandemic hit and they got kicked in the ass right through the door and had to do it all. Yeah. And now they're trying to, re, to almost regroup to that 1718 time period where it's a perk and a privilege uh, as opposed to the default uh, a way that everybody works naturally. Um, when you... When we were talking about ChatGPT and you used the word data analyst and you were talking about how that, that job would change with ChatGPT, I was listening to you and I was thinking about when I think data analyst, I think someone relatively junior that sits there, has to be in the office and is collecting data back when it used to be in files and cabinets and on paper. And you needed this job in order to collate this data so management could use it to make decisions. And when you think about the experience of that human that data analyst over the last few decades, and now even with AI, that that job may or may not even exist, or it's materially different now. It made me think about the future of work and made me think about how now that employee is still valuable. You still need that employee. You need them to be able to do their job. They do not need to be in an office, or at least much less so, depending on if you talk to Kevin O'Leary or Elon Musk. So the physical space becomes about experiences. 
which I think ties directly into what you're asking about these vacancy factors is, and you said it too, is like, we need to see each other. You and I, you know, we had dinner not that long ago and that was fun. And I would like to do that again the next time I'm, I'm nearby you. I think it was probably fun. better than this. I think it was fun because I paid for it. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> and that you need experiences. And you need physical space to do those experiences, not cubicles, which is an interesting, even new economy, right? How are we going to start having more experiences in a commercial real estate setting? And these escape rooms were popular before the pandemic. I don't know if they're still well, this, this takes us to an interesting point then, because if you listen to the CEOs of the major companies, <clears throat> they say, oh, we need to preserve our corporate culture. And that's one of the primary reasons we have to have company, everybody back at the office. So let's step to the side a little bit, talk remote work, talk flexibility in the workplace in general, work from home, work near home, and then work in the office. Work near home, two perfect examples, a good one and a bad one. We work, IWG, yay. One of them succeeding, one of them's failing. They do the same thing. Uh, overall, they have the work near home solution and they're one of the primary words that in the flexible workspace industry, we used to say uh, that industry is created by the combination of by combining people, place and technology into a single bundle product that's delivered with a highly flexible service agreement instead of a lease. Today, you would say people, place, technology and community. Workplace without community, just like a corporation or a, 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 an organization without um, um, a culture, doesn't have a soul. It just doesn't. And no one wants to work for a soulless organization or in a soulless environment. So when you talk experience, immediately, I don't think of physical experience, cooler, uh, you know, ping pong tables or whatever. Right. I think of the community of who's working there and how they interact together, even though they might be from different companies. So where do you think the flexible workspace industry and which is massive now and is, is the largest uh, 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 taker of new commercial office space globally. Now that one industry is, it's not the tech industry or it's not, other financial industries, it's now the flexible workspace industry. They're taking more new space anywhere globally than everybody else. So yeah. how does that shape, reshape the future of work when you think remote work, um, uh, uh, you know, versus uh, in the office work versus near home versus at home, and you bring in this culture and community element? I think it turns it on its head completely. I accept your premise, this, this addition of the community word. I think you are correct. I don't think anyone would really debate you on that. And if you accept that premise, then the whole thing about having exclusive spaces, uh, it, it just, it flips upside down. And then the whole way we've been thinking about commercial real estate based on decades of historical data is just no longer the way it's going to be utilized in the future and certainly no longer the way that new people as they enter the workforce, people graduating, et cetera, will see it. And, it, and it, the industry is going to have to change. It's going to change everything about lease agreements. Like you talk about service agreements versus lease agreements, like all of this stuff right. is really important. 
Yeah, no, I think that that, that, uh, that is important. Um, and I think we're starting to see that. Uh, it, it, and I don't want to say retrograde, but in some respects, when you look at cities um, and you go back 100 years and then 200 years and 300 years, 300 years ago, um, you were living above the stable that was your bottom floor where your cows were and it might have been in, in the city. Um, uh, 200 years ago, you were living over the top of your tailor shop or whatever you were as a tradesperson or a business. Um, only in the last 100, 150 years as we've in completely industrialized have people lived separate from their workplace. Yeah. Okay, so for tens of thousands of years, we have lived and worked in the same environment. And I think that while building shapes and sizes have changed and, and density has changed, that we are going to go back to a live-work environment and repurpose cities and take, uh, take Manhattan, take any tower, take it at, let's assume it's 30 or 50% vacant today or will be tomorrow. What are you going to do with that space? What's a major problem? Why don't people want to work in the office? And you've hit it, we commute. Right. Why do they commute? Because they can't afford to live in the city. Well, if you repurpose that space, a third of the office space to residential space, all those people that were commuting, or a big percentage of them, will be able to now live in the city, and that will add a whole new dynamic to it. So I think we're going to see it'll be slow, evolutionary, not revolutionary. But I think we are going to see a repurposing of cities and uh, will create a very vibrant environment, uh, actually, where the people that work in the city actually live there, as opposed to live someone out somewhere else. And I think that will solve many problems, not just commuting, uh, which is a problem of what's the outcome of commuting, loss of time, loss of quality of life, pollution uh, is a, a big factor there. Um, and what's the outcome of living where you work? Improved culture, improved arts, improved economy where you live, uh, reduction in crime. All these things have, have been proven. So hopefully the future of our workplace will be where we live more closely aligned. Uh, and accelerated by these things we talked about in the beginning of, of yeah, this. About that, then the capital markets will allow that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the reinvestment uh, uh, will be vibrant then. So we're going to have to, like I say, you, know, you, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Okay. Sure. And I think we're going to have to break a few eggs here. But if we do, I think the omelet is going to be delicious. Yeah, I agree. You know, good. Well, Joshua, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, uh, I know you do great work with uh, mid, mid gap companies. Uh, how would they, how would people reach out to you if, if they were wanting to do so? On our website, jahaniandassociates.com, there's a pop-up form to, to have a call with us and get to know us. And that's, that's the best way. And I also know and want to thank you that you're going to be writing some feature articles for all work uh, uh, in the future uh, based on uh, the financial approaches to the industry and our industry, which you know quite well. So I want to welcome you and thank you to becoming uh, one of the voices for the future of work as we go forward. Thank you, Frank. It's a pleasure. Take care. Bye. If it's impacting the future of work, 
It's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space.